Welcome to episode 100 of Design Details. I'm Brent Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. We made it all this way. 100. It's the big one. 100 episodes. Followed by two zeros. 1.12 million downloads. Mm-hmm. A little over a year. Mm-hmm. We've chatted with over 100 people. It's been a good year. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, who has listened along, shared an episode, tweeted at us. We literally wouldn't have made it this far without you. Yeah, literally. Uh, everyone that's met us for coffee and drinks and emailed us, tweeted at us, chatted with us in our Slack team. It has been awesome. And all of the amazing guests. We met many of our heroes, had some of our friends on, made several new friends. It's been pretty incredible to build relationships this way. So here we are at episode 100. We invited Daniel Burke on. He's been on our list for... A long, long time. Uh, <laughs> I think since day, since day one. one, yeah. Daniel Burke is someone that we really look up to and respect, and it was awesome to finally get him in mm-hmm. the the kitchen to chat for episode one. He said yes back in Hawaii, and we finally were able to make it happen. I'm glad it was someone that we look up to that much for episode 100. Before we get started on this special episode, I uh, just wanted to remind everyone that we have more podcasts for designers and developers on the Spec Network. You can find those at spec.fm. Shows like Vicarious, Immutable, Does Not Compute, and Developer T are all being made to help you level up as both a designer and or developer. Why not both? Why not both? So go check them out. That's at spec.fm. Of course, if you want to chat with us, join our Slack team. That's at spec.fm slash Slack. And finally, hit us up on Twitter. We really do appreciate the responses, the feedback on episodes. So of course, give us feedback on episode 100. With Daniel Burka, tweet at us. We're at Design Details FM. This is episode 100 with Daniel Burka. Hi, my name's Daniel Burka, and I'm a design partner at GV, previously known as Google Ventures. Hey, you got that sharp new logo. It's like a G and half of a V. It's a G slash. G slash. <laughs> is that like a tech thing? Like the G drive? Whatever you want it to be. It's, 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 what, it's whatever, whatever you, you want it to be. In it. Yeah. It's like real art. Did you design the new logo? Uh, we worked actually with the Google's material team. Okay. So a few really talented designers there. So I worked on it kind of in an art directing role. Okay. And uh, a few members of that team came over and volunteered their their help with it. And uh, really, really happy with where it landed. Nice, nice. Yeah, that was a great rebrand. I think everyone, for the most part. I didn't know what to do with the ribbon thing before. I wasn't quite sure what that was. That predated my involvement in the company. And I also didn't know what to do with it. Uh, I kind of like the ribbon. <laughs> it was cool. It seemed versatile. Like, it was googly. It was That's all googly. I knew. Yeah, yeah, it was googly in that it was meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> you take those four colors and make a bunch of swooshy logos, like the Google Photos logo or Chrome. Like They all start looking the same. So is GV still under Google or is that now Alphabet? We are an Alphabet company. Okay. So is that the V? We're just GV. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And for people that don't know, what do you do at GV? Yeah, so I'm a design partner. So GV is a venture capital company. And, you know, we're typical venture capital company in a lot of ways. Uh, Alphabet gives us a large amount of money every year, so several hundred million dollars. And we go and invest that into startups. So everything from small startups, you know, two people in their basement making some software, all the way up to some really big startups. So we invest in Uber, Flatiron Health, um, you know, so companies in life sciences, we do a lot of investing in life sciences, so, uh, stuff like farming software, um, robotics, kind of a whole range of things. And uh, we're really unusual in the venture world that we have a design team. Exactly. So not just one designer, but we've got uh, five designers uh, on our team. and uh, Pretty prominent designers too. Well known. <laughs> old. <laughs> say, I like to say experience, but that really just means old. Um, yeah, so we've all worked on some really interesting projects in the past, and now we're able to bring kind of all of that experience uh, to working with all these startups. So we're helping the companies we've invested in uh, solve their design challenges. In a lot of ways, you can think of that as a secondary investment. So we've already invested cash into these businesses you know, to get equity, and now we're investing our time as a design team to help the businesses become more successful um, with the expectation that that will generate bigger returns. That's something Soleo talked about when he was on the show, was investing by design is how he phrased it. He just spends a lot of time doing that too as well. You guys seem to be the only venture capital firm doing anything like that. There's like one or two 
people. There are a few other firms that have designers. So Kleiner has teams, right? John Maida and mm-hmm. uh, Irene's at Coastal Ventures. Um, Jeff Fien is at True Ventures. So I know that, Jared Arand who's hanging out at Greylock and like a few people are getting. Yeah. So I think there's a, a, a real interest in design, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, GV has a large commitment to design that's uh, pretty unusual. Why was it so strongly held that that design could shape these companies and have a meaningful like influence on outcomes? Well, I'm the the latest designer to join the team. So, you know, even three, I've been there three years. Um, so I wasn't there at the outset. But I think GV has a strong entrepreneurial quality to it. You know, people really interested in not just the finance side of investing, but really interested in building great companies and great products. And that means that we're much more interested in getting involved in what the companies are doing if, if they're interested in having us to help solve their problems with them. It just seems like a natural fit. Before we get into some of the stuff that you're doing at GV, because there's lots of interesting problems, let's step back because your resume is a mile long, but I don't know the story before that. Like, what got you into design, where you're from? So can we start sort of the beginning of your story getting into design? Sure. Um, So I got into design in high school. So in the late 90s, I was in, grew up in a really small place in eastern Canada called Charlottetown. It's a town of about 40,000 people. I had a really good teacher in high school who was, you know, taught a graphic design class. And I learned, you know, curl draw two maybe to do some, an early Photoshop, maybe Photoshop one or two. Uh, learned how to do some really basic graphic design stuff. And I was really passionate about it. Um, I have a twin brother and he and I were really both into this stuff. What got you like actually into doing that? Well, like what kind of stuff were you making? Because, I mean, design wasn't like a job then, right? No, I mean, in, in school, obviously, we weren't getting paid. We were just doing little projects that, you know, she tasked us to do. Oh, okay. Um, this is one Barbara Bovaird, and uh, just giving her a little shout out. <laughs> and uh, I bet she's listening right now. Totally. I'll send her a link. But right away in high school, uh, my brother and I and some friends were trying to think what summer jobs we could do. And all the jobs in, you know, that area were all like tourism jobs, basically. It's a big tourist area. And we weren't really interested in doing any service jobs. And we figured out really early on that there were these government grants. So this is Canada, right? It's kind of socialist. And there's these government grants for students to do projects. And uh, we found these government grants to digitize museum collections. So this group hmm. within Industry Canada was giving out, you know, five or $6,000 for teams to go and work with the museum and digitize their collections and put them online. Hmm. And my mom was a bureaucrat, and she had heard of this. And she she told us we should just apply for one. So we set up, like, a company just to do this. And uh, we won a grant, and we did a project, and we digitized a bunch of uh, photographs that um, a person from our area had taken during the First World War. And hmm. uh, I was actually doing copywriting at the time. I was uh, uh, just starting in, in history in university, and I did a lot of the writing for this project. And my brother actually did most of the design. But we gathered this little team. We made good coin for a summer, you know, right out of high, or basically still in high school. And then there were no explicit rules about reapplying to the project. So we actually did four projects, you know, over the next three summers. The the fourth summer, we actually did two simultaneously and then fed them back to the grant, you know, organizer, like over the summer and kind of game the system and made like (laughs) seven or $8,000, which was pretty good. Covered my first couple of years of tuition in college. It was actually really funny that the head of Industry Canada, so that that department, that government department, was visiting Google a couple of years ago, and I actually met with him. Oh, wow. They sent me in to, you know, do the the show kind uh-huh. of thing, and I was like, shook his hand. I was like, thanks a lot, man. You, like, genuinely helped me get into uh, doing what I do. So it was pretty cool. Um, and after that experience, you know, we had this team, and we've been working on some, you know, web projects together. This early, like we were hacking together an access database to make dynamic websites and like learning HTML. This is way pre prior to CSS coming out. We learned a lot and we decided, you know, hey, maybe we can make this into a business. And so we started a little web design company together uh, called Silver Orange. Really remarkably, I'm I'm genuinely really proud of this. The the company's still in business today. So I was actually just up in Canada last week visiting the Silver Orange crew. They do a State of the Union meeting. Just unfortunately in February every year, just ass cold up in Canada. It was about 14 degrees below zero up there. Do I have to come back? San Francisco is so nice. But it's great to see them. And there's these old friend of mine and they're still running this agency. And that's that's how I got into design. And it's kind of remarkable that they've made it made it work for this long. And there's there's been a few tricks to it. If if I can talk about it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. At the beginning, right, there's a chicken and egg problem when you start a design agency. And 
it's really hard to get great clients until you've got great clients. And uh, we struggled for the first few years. And then uh, there was a suggestion came up. It was actually my mother made this suggestion. So your mom is really the key player in like your whole getting hey, into design. She gave <laughs> us a place to have an office right? in her house. Right? She made us mac and cheese. All while being a bureaucrat. I mean, she worked in the Department of Education. Yeah, she was, um, she was great. And she came up with the suggestion that we approach a bigger business than we'd worked with previously and work with them on uh, a commission basis. So we approached a large uh, retailer, an online uh, mail order retailer that was based near us that sold gardening stuff. But they were like the biggest gardening retailer in Canada. And we approached them. We said, your website sucks. You know, we're a bunch of cocky kids. We were like 21, 22 years old. And we were like, your website sucks. We think you could sell a lot more stuff online. Let us make you a new, like, serious website and give us 6% of the profit. And they were like, they weren't making very much money on the website. And they ran the numbers and they're like, oh, it means we're going to pay them like, you know, $10,000 a year. Like, that's a good deal for a new website. And so, you know, we had way more time than we did liabilities. You know, none Mm -hmm. of us had families. We all, you know, lived in cheap apartments and ate ramen all the time. So we spent the next four months designing a website, you know, developing and designing a website for them. We made a lot of money on that site. Um, <laughs> worked you, out really well. Can you say? Oh, I can't. Like I can't, honestly days, can't remember. Like you increased their conversions, obviously. Oh, I mean, it must have been 10x what their <laughs> original sales. I mean, their original site was broken, broken. Crazy. Um, that worked out great. And mm-hmm. we, I can still remember we signed like a four-year contract with them, I think. And it just seemed like forever. Because we were really young. It just seemed like way off in the future. And then we repeated that a bit, and we created a bunch of e-commerce sites, and that was really successful. And then the next thing we did that, that turned out to be a, a major turning point, it was especially you know, useful for me, was one of the guys in the company, um, this is in the early days of Firefox. So originally, I don't know if you guys remember the story, but originally you know, AOL acquired Netscape, and mm-hmm. Netscape had kind of floundered under AOL. And uh, at, at some point... I guess it's 2003 or 2004, um, they spun, Mozilla managed to spin itself back out of AOL. And a couple of engineers, uh, Ben Goodger and, um, what's his name? The guy who ended up at Facebook. Um, Anyway, another really- Facebook. Another Mm -hmm. great engineer um, created this little lightweight web browser out of the middle of the Mozilla suite. So instead of this big, cumbersome piece of software, they made what they at the time termed Phoenix. And Phoenix was this bitchin' little web browser. And one of the guys at Silver Orange was using it really early on, our creative director, Steve Garrity. And uh, he was really into it. And, you know, at the time, IE was like 95% of the browser dominance, I think. It was, mm-hmm. it was just dominating everything. And he wrote to the Mozilla team online on this, on this web blog he had. It seems so, like, cute now. We, <laughs> we all used web blogs back then. And uh, he posted on his web blog that... Um, that it was an amazing browser, but that the UI and the fit and finish of the brand was really letting it down and that it wouldn't get to mainstream adoption unless it, it got a bit more serious about that stuff and looked like professional software. And one of the guys from Mozilla wrote back to him and he said, oh, you're totally right. We've been passing this around the, our office. And it, it's, it's easy to forget now. Like We were in rural Canada and it blew us away that people in California were talking about a post that we had made. Like, we were really isolated and like, whoa, like these guys in California, they're interested. And the guy at Mozilla said, you're totally right. You guys should fix it. And I'm like, oh my God, like it's an open source project. Like they don't have any designers yet. Like we could do that. And so Steve got permission to pull together this group called the Mozilla Visual Identity Team. We gave it a really bureaucratic title, apparently. <laughs> um, but it was uh, me and him and this uh, other one of our other coworkers, Steve Drosh, and John Hicks, who's an amazing illustrator from the mm-hmm. UK, who was like pretty unknown at the time. We just liked some some logo work he had done, and uh, Steve Horlander and a few other people. And um, and over the next you know few months, the bunch of us like bunch of amateurs, to be honest. Um, whipped together some ideas. And the, the Firefox logo actually ended up um, as yeah. the end result of a sketch that mm-hmm. I did on a, on a whiteboard. Oh, wow. I mean, John should get 95% of the credit. Yeah, I yeah. mean, his, his final rendering was, was totally amazing. But because, you know, we got to work on that, it gave us a lot of, uh, you know, notoriety in the, the web world and we ended up um, getting Dig as a client. And you know, I ended up, after working on Dig for a little bit, uh, moving down here and being the creative director there. And 
one thing led to another. I worked at a few startups and wait, can we, can we pause? What was that transition like? Cause you've started this agency with your friends and your brother and then you have this client and then all of a sudden you are working at this, this company. So what happened? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds bad when you say it like that, but oh, um, I don't mean it in a bad way. Just Benedict I'm, Berka. I'm curious how that, yeah. like what that transition was like for you. Um, so I'd been at, at Silver Orange for seven years and when you're Oh, 26 yeah. years old, seven years is a really long time. Um, so I'd been there for seven years. We got hired by by Kevin to work on Dig, and I was the one doing almost all the work. And after a few months, you know, Dig was really picking up and being something. Uh, Kevin had raised uh, an angel round early on from Ron Conway and a few people. And uh, And when he asked me if I'd consider moving down here, I really weighed my options really heavily because I was really worried about hurting Silver Orange and leaving my friends. But um, it was really exciting to the idea of moving to California and, and being at the center of the web um, was really exciting. And I actually arranged with Kevin that for the first six months, I'd work two weeks for Dig and two weeks for Silver Orange every month. And that worked out great because it was really cost effective for Kevin. It meant I was working full time technically, so I could get a visa to move down here. Yeah, I'm a Canadian citizen. And so it was actually really flexible and really you know, simple that I was able to kind of um, wean myself away from Silver Orange. And it all went really smoothly. And the guys at Silver Orange are really cool about it. Yeah. I mean, Dig at the time was like three of us, four of us. Like we're just hacking on some shit in a little office in Potrero Hill. And you and Kevin kind of stuck it out over the years. You ended up building several projects together. Yeah. So Kevin and I have worked really well together over time. I think he's got a really good feel for the market and has a really good product sense. And I'm really effective at helping him uh, narrow his ideas and test which ones are going to be effective, you know, both just by prototyping them and then by by actually testing them in the wild. And uh, so he and I have had a, a really great partnership, I think, for, for a really long time now. So what happened after Dig? So after Dig, I'd been at Dig for about five years while I was at Dig, Kevin and I started another company called Pounds. Yeah. I mean, that was a little <laughs> nuts. I was working like a full-time job at Dig. So I'd go to Dig between nine and maybe seven o'clock at night. I'd come home. I'd work on Pounds until three in the morning. I was living with one of the other co-founders. It was a little <laughs> nuts. Um, so we did that for about two years before we sold it to Six Apart. But after Dig, I'd been there for about five years and... Uh, I was just ready to move on. It was kind of changing into a, a larger organization I was a little less interested in working at. And uh, I was ready for a new challenge. I actually joined a company at the time called TinySpec. So Stuart Butterfield, mm-hmm. Cal Henderson, and a few other people. And TinySpec was building a game called Glitch. It was The idea was a massively multiplayer online game in the browser. And uh, yeah, Glitch turned into Slack. <laughs> and, <laughs> and here uh, we are. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, Pretty wild. It's pretty cool to hang out with those guys now. And they're, they've built this, you know, juggernaut. And uh, it's actually really interesting that, you know, I'm still a part shareholder of Slack. And uh, GV recently invested in a large amount of money in Slack. And so I, it's really interesting to be double involved in the company and, and to be friends circle. with those guys. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I was the director of design at, at TinySpec. What happened after TinySpec? So Kevin was was free from Dig. Mm-hmm. Um, that was That was done. And um, Kevin and I uh, rejoined to, to form a company called Milk. Um, the idea was to build several startups um, under one kind of roof. And we built a product called Oink, and we were working on another product and got a nice offer from Google and ended up being acquired by Google uh, to go work at Google Proper, where I worked for about nine months and then got the opportunity to go work to, at GV. You were on Google Plus there? Uh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I was running the mobile design team there for about nine months. Um, yeah, yeah it was had, a very challenging place to work. I think we've had some friends that work with you there <laughs> that were like really excited to spend time with you. Yeah, I, there were some great designers there. Mm-hmm. I was really fortunate to have an opportunity to work with some really, really smart people. That was great. But I feel really fortunate now to get to work with a broad range of startups. Right. I think my real passion is not on optimizing large pieces of software within a big company. I, I'm really interested in helping new ideas get off the ground and helping people home products. Um, in in more of a startup environment. Right. So that catches us up basically to now. You've been at GV for three years. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm nodding at you. <laughs> Everybody can hear it's, it. It's great audio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So you mentioned a few things like farming and uh, medicine, things like that. Things that people don't normally think of as tech products, things that aren't necessarily sexy. How do you approach working on those things? Right. 
So that's actually one of my favorite parts about working at GV is we get a, such a huge range of projects that we get to jump in on. It's everything from your, you know, the stuff you'd expect. So, you know, consumer internet stuff, uh, Uber, um, all the way to some projects that you just don't think of all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, designers are always talking about, you know, their apps and, you know, what was that trend a few years ago? All the designers were making weather apps. Um <laughs> To-do lists, weather apps. Now everything is a text message app. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's the mm-hmm. new thing. But I get to work on a bunch of things like, uh, like you know, this group called Farmers Business Network that's building fairly complex software to help you know build prediction models for farmers so they can make better choices like seed purchasing decisions. And it's super, super interesting from a design perspective because you're looking at this giant matrix of factors, right? So you need to know what your soil types are, what the geography of your farm is, what your previous you know planting has been, so what seeds you've been planting on on certain soils, what your fertilizers, your nitrogens have been on certain soils, what the weather patterns are like in your area, and then what they're doing is is typically when farmers buy seed, they're going to their seed dealer and getting you know basically advice on like oh which seeds do you think I should get, which is a lot like going to like you know, a big pharma company and asking which drug you need for your cold, like they'll just tell you the most expensive one and more of it, right? So it's pretty corrupt. Or they're looking at academic literature, right? So there's there's people, you know, soil, uh, sorry, crop analysts who'll give you advice on what to buy. But what these guys are doing is they're taking all the data that's coming in off farm equipment. So modern farm equipment collects a ton of data about, you know, planting rates and what seeds you're planting and where it's being planted, you know, GPS coordinated and stuff. Um, and then they're taking that and looking at what your seed performance was like on your soils, and then cross-referencing that across millions of acres of other farmers who are feeding their data into the into the, the system. And so you can do, you know, farmers with fields like mine and weather patterns like mine are applying these seeds with these fertilizers and getting this type of performance. So you can see, like, you know, I'm in the 10th percentile or I'm in the 90th percentile and make much better choices in the future on which seeds you should be buying and planting on your, on your you know, soil. And this is like incredibly effective for driving, um, you know, better performance on farms. And this is like important to millions of Americans, but not the people who live in the city of San Francisco. Advice to people who are not living in San Francisco, which is 85% of our audience, that that want to get into tech, they want to start working on products and and do design jobs. Uh, it's tempting to come and work at these sexy startups, big companies. What's your advice to them now that you've seen some of the non-sexy problems? Well, I think one one of the pieces of advice is that look at the core business, right? So the things that are really interesting to investors are, you know, is this a strong business, right? And frankly, I think that's really interesting to designers too, you know, Companies that make great businesses are ones where design can be very effective and measurable because you can make the business better and measure whether or not the business is being more successful. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do in a, these some of these like kind of esoteric little startups in San Francisco, right? Like, are more people doing checking the weather in your app? I, I don't <laughs> know. Like, yeah, I mean, of course you can measure that, but like whether or not you can mm-hmm. you know create a business out of that's difficult. Something like this farming thing, I think, is so interesting because one, it's very important. You know, mm-hmm. so it's mission driven. You know, it's get you get to work on something that matters to a lot of people. And two, it's an excellent business. I mean, you're in the the intersection between farmers making large purchasing decisions. And so that's the thing that I'm I'm so stoked about working at GV is that not only do you get to work on things that matter in this world, you know, like we invested over a hundred million dollars in a company that's trying to cure cancer, you get it work on those kinds of problems and they're not only good for the world, but it turns out the things that are good for the world are things people are willing to pay for. Because <laughs> if it can save As you money, happens, if it can yeah. save your life... Um, Generally, saving your life is a good thing to invest in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people, people are willing to pay a lot of money to you know, live a Keep longer, <laughs> richer, a longer, richer life, yeah. Are there any threads that you notice uh, you know, from farming to Uber and curing cancer? What are some common threads of problems that you see companies having Specifically, as it relates to design and like, how do you guys come in and, and help them? Um, sure. So I think one of the biggest challenges for designers, and you hear designers talk about this a lot, is that design works at the surface level, 
right? And so I think a lot of designers are always complaining they're not getting their seat at the table or all the product decisions are made before design gets involved and now it's just about slapping a veneer onto something. And uh, that can be frustrating for designers because you can, you know, if you're working on a, a product that, you know, has, has bad decisions fundamentally, no matter how good you are as a designer, you're not going to be able to pull it out of the ditch. Um, and I think designers honestly... Um, if I can ramble a little bit, I think that designers often shoot themselves in the foot by talking about the aesthetics part of design. You know, it's great talking about that with other designers, you know, talking about kerning and line heights and color theory, uh, grid systems. These things are really fun to talk about with other designers and really valuable. Mm -hmm. But I think designers spend much too much time talking about this thing with other people in the business. And if you, instead of talking about design with your CEO or the head of product or your engineers, instead listen to them, like what are the things that are important to them? What things are keeping your head of product up at night? You know, what, what are their objectives for this quarter? And then if you start thinking, oh, how can design help solve those problems? Mm -hmm. How can I be involved to make that other person more successful in their job? You're much more likely to be listened to and much more likely to have much more impact on the business. Um, so one of the best ways I've seen that design can be doing that is by getting involved in, in prototyping other people's ideas. I think designers, and this is why I'm so excited that prototyping is becoming more and more of a talked about subject in design and so many tools are starting to be made for prototyping, is what you see in, in many businesses is there's, everybody's got these little inklings of ideas for products or you know product decisions, but they don't know how to communicate them to each other. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking about, oh, changing the onboarding flow in this way. And when you hear it, you're not hearing the exact same thing. We can't both visualize exactly how that product's going to be in our, in our heads. So I'm holding one version of it in my head, and you end up with another version of it in your head. And that's where you see a lot of conflict in companies. So people are arguing, no, users will do X, and no, no, users will do Y. And you end up in those really heated meetings where everyone's pulling shit out of their ass because they don't know what's going on. And that's where I think design can be the most effective and really step in and be like, oh, it's like this. And you can pull it down out of the sky, out of this kind of abstraction, and make it into something, something tangible. You know, it might just be a facade. It might just look like a house, but not actually mm -hmm. built the house. But all of a sudden, we're talking about the same thing. And even if it's not the right thing, all of a sudden, we have a base to start on that we can adapt from. And I think if designers can find those moments to be involved as early as possible in taking other people's ideas, pulling them down and creating something out of them mm -hmm. that both gets you at the center of the conversation and gives you the opportunity to shape those ideas. Yeah, like forming the the roadmap itself is w way more rewarding, first of all, uh, and also just more impactful, right? Like you alter the outcome of the business itself. Yeah. And which for in me, turn that's, makes design which, more valued. And well, that's like where it should live anyway, right? That's how we talk about it a lot of times. Like design is a lot more than just the veneer. Like you should just generally be thinking about that way, regardless of how much you want to seat at the table. If you want to be more important or if you want to be more than a visual designer, you should be taking all of this into account. Like the real design is in meeting business goals, not just putting a coat of paint on something. I mean, I feel very strongly about that. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have any like preferred tools you're using for prototyping, things like that? Or well, I think first time? of all, the most important thing is to use the tool that will get you there quickly. Mm -hmm. So there's a really steep angle. You know, if you, if you look at it like a graph, there's a very steep curve from going from we're just talking about an idea to that's something that appears to be realistic. And then the further you take it, you know, to, towards like production level design takes much longer. So if you can design something really quickly, that's basically just a throwaway, you know, it's just a facade. Mm -hmm. um, use whatever tool gets you there really quickly. Some tools like InVision, Flinto, Marvel, you know, are particularly well suited. I think Comet, it's not released yet, right? But when Comet gets released, I think it seems really promising. And, um, you know, any, any number of tools can get you there. You know, thankfully, we're in this kind of golden age of prototyping. I think mm -hmm. a number of these tools are quite good. I've used Keynote for prototyping before. Yep. If Magic you're move. super fast in Photoshop, like, fucking knock yourself out. Just use Photoshop. But it's mostly in the mindset of, oh, okay, I don't need to make production-level design. I need to listen to other people, not necessarily build my, you know, design my ideas. I need to design theirs so they can see them in in, in the real world. Mm -hmm. You know, like one, one classic management trick is like if your boss tells you they've got the great idea and you're like, oh, that's a dumb idea, and you start rolling your eyes. What you, what I always do is I go and prototype their dumb idea, and then I prototype right next to it that dumb idea translated into something great. 
It's like you had a kernel of a good idea in, in what you were that saying. That seems like the hardest part. <laughs> and if you can show them their idea and they can see it and say, oh, you try my thing and I can see its mm -hmm. weaknesses, you know, because I, they couldn't see it when it was in their head. It just looked golden. And then they can see, oh, you took my idea and did this other thing and now I can see it's good. Then all of a sudden you're building, they'll still think it's their idea, which is perfect because now you can actually go ship it and they feel like they were part of it because they were. And you know now you're working together instead of against each other, which raises another question. Uh, you know, you talked about designers at, at some of the companies you're working with and noticing common problems. But from the business side, when businesses approach you, what are problems that they're facing? Uh, because obviously, in the last five years, we're seeing this incredible rise of design being valued at companies, right? Within tech and without of tech. So, what are these people coming to you with problems for? And like. How does that how does that initial conversation happen? Yeah, so this, this is really interesting because I think design is much more respected than it's ever been in right. in the tech world. But the more you talk to entrepreneurs, the more you realize that they just think design is a pixie dust. That there's some magic in design, and they know Apple's got it, and they think Airbnb's got it, but they're not quite sure what all those designers at Airbnb are doing all day. <laughs> um, does anybody know? Maybe Katie. I hear that question. <laughs> All the time. What is Dropbox doing with all those designers? Facebook. Something. So the, the interesting thing is like uh, Braden and I, one of my coworkers and I were over in London. Braden Cowitz? Braden Cowitz, yeah. Cowitz. Um, he and I were over in London uh, maybe a year ago and we we're meeting with a bunch of entrepreneurs and the, the conversation inevitably went exactly like this. Like we, it was kind of rote. We met with maybe 20 entrepreneurs in a week and we'd sit down and the first thing we'd say is, oh, okay, when you think of design, what do you think of? And they were like, oh, it's all about brand. Brand's really important. And then they'd say look and feel. And then they might talk about usability. And so they're kind of working themselves down from like surface level a little bit deeper. And they, they generally didn't get a lot deeper than it has to be usable. You know, the next question we'd ask them is like, oh, okay, what keeps you up at night? And they'd like visibly relax because they didn't feel like they were being tested anymore. And then they'd talk about all these things that had nothing to do with, you know, quote unquote design. And it turns out design's excellent at solving these other problems. So the biggest risks that we see in businesses is that what's happening in companies is that they're building minimum viable products. So this idea of you know, lower, lower A agile design methodology where you're build, you know, ideating, building, launching, measuring, and going around this loop is, is pretty much you know, considered gospel now in, in the Bay Area, at least, and mostly in, in uh, the rest of the world. And so you know, it's great. We're not doing the waterfall technique anymore. We're not spending two years you know, developing products before we launch them, and that's nice. But the, if you look at it, it still has huge risks, and it's still really slow. So what happens is, because you're going to build and launch something, you choose the, that one thing, kind of your best bet. And so you intellectually sit around with a bunch of people and argue a lot, and then you choose your best bet. Then you go and engineer as quickly as you can, and that's cool because we're much faster at engineering than we've ever been. You know, and now we've got you know don't even have to spin up servers and stuff. You know, it's somebody else's problem. And then we launch it, and then we try to measure it. And the problems are that it takes longer to th than you think to build something. Once you launch it, there's no going back. I mean, you've, you guys ever tried to like pull back a feature from people? Painful. Right. I mean, yeah. there's always like three users who like fucking love the thing and they come at you with pitchfork. <laughs> and then when you try to measure it, even though statistical tools are getting much better, there's often a lot of ambiguity, right? It's either we don't know what's really happening, and then worst of all, we don't know why anything's happening, right? And so almost every startup you talk to is making products this way. And it turns out it's a very, very risky way to make products and very slow way to make products. If you're a big company, it's a huge waste of money. If you're a small company, it's a huge waste of your runway. And so where I see the real opportunity for design, and this is what we talk to entrepreneurs about a lot, is using design to close that loop and make it much, much tighter. So instead of building and launching and measuring, what we're encouraging them to do is ideate, test several ideas as prototypes, measure them through user research. So you're getting, you know, not getting quantitative analysis, but you're getting very rich qualitative analysis. And then going back through that loop, but extremely rapidly. So you're working in, you know, we work in one week sprints and we think this is an excellent way to work. And the other advantage, you know, not only are you moving fast, but because you're moving really, really fast, you're not falling in love with your ideas. So even if something, you Nothing's know, if something fails, exactly, if something fails in the research phase, 
you just like wipe your hands of it. And you're like, oh, thank God that was a dud. Like we could have spent, like we worked with with a team recently, um, one of our, our larger investments, and they were about to make like a four or five month engineering bet on something. And there were two competing ideas in, in-house. One was extremely engineering heavy and complicated. And it was beautiful. Like if you look at it in, at, intellectually, it was a tapestry. And then there was this other idea that, was pretty basic, has been done before, it was a bit simplistic. We went and prototyped both of them in a week. The really beautiful, comp- complex one was a f- like complete failure. It's not, these, this research not, is not always this clear. In this case, five out of five users like tanked on it. <laughs> like couldn't tell you what the software did when they were finished with the out-of-box experience. And the simple one was a total success. You know, five out of five users at the end, you ask them kind of what the three basic functions of the software did, and they could tell you in a great, great detail about it. So this company went off, built that, then ran a giant multi-million dollar marketing campaign to bring in users, and it turned out to be really successful. So I think that's, you know, the real, it's not always as clean, but that's the, the real case where this saved a ton of money and made the company significantly more successful. Um, I think more and more designers need to be working in this model where they're pulling those ideas down, figuring out how to prototype, test, and iterate extremely quickly. And all of a sudden, you're incredibly valuable to a business. The sprint is broken down into a few steps, right? Can you explain what those are? Sure. So the sprint is a, is a five-day process. So we literally work from Monday until Friday evening. Um, and, and just to be clear, we just wrote a book about this. So um, <laughs> you know, I'll plug the book for sure. Go to gv.com slash sprint. Um, there are several uh, links to, to buy the book, uh, buy pre-orders the for the book. Yep, yep. It's going to come out on March 8th. Um, but the basic idea of a sprint is that on Monday, you bring a whole bunch of people into the room. So all the experts within the company, right? So in the case of Blue Bottle, for instance, we invest in Blue Bottle Coffee. We made sure that the head of marketing was in the room. They talked about kind of where they're trying to drive the brand. We talked to the head of customer service and we asked her, where are the current hurdles with people trying to buy coffee? And she could talk about, you know, all the struggles people had trying to choose the right, you know, but coffee's like just a bag of beans like which bag of beans do you buy there's 14 bags like they're all relatively similar like how do you choose the right one for you so we talked to customer service we talked to the engineering team about the challenges of their e-commerce system so you talk to all the experts on monday and, and try to pull all the knowledge from within the organization together so everybody's on the same page and kind of it's the big download then we look at competitive patterns, so kind of how other people are solving similar problems. In the case of coffee, it's really interesting because you can uh, look at how chocolate is sold. Chocolate is very similar. If you look at dark chocolate, they'll you know um, say uh, uh, dandelion chocolate in the Mission in San Francisco. They sell you know eight different types of dark chocolate. They're all ostensibly the same thing, but the way they can describe the flavors around fruity or earthy or, you know, there, there's several kind of words that they can use that resonate with people uh, makes sense. Because in the coffee world, you know, people describe like Ecuadorian coffee versus, you know, Costa Rican coffee versus Kenyan coffee. Like we did a bit of research on this. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nope. Like not even experts know, really know the difference because it, it makes a big difference in how you roast it. So at the end of Monday, we pull down all this knowledge. We've thought about kind of what's, what's the story for how somebody learns about, you know, a brand of coffee and then how they make a purchasing decision. We come in on Tuesday and we think about, you know, we, we start uh, drawing ideas. Here's how a flow could work that would, you know, help people choose between 20 brown bags of coffee. Here's a flow on how we could introduce the brand of Blue Ball and how it's different from other brands of coffee. So we sketch a whole bunch of ideas down. We put them up on the wall. And then on Wednesday... We have a voting process that we go through and we choose which ones we think have the most likelihood of success. Um, And we look at kind of if there are two prototypes for how to choose between 20 brown bags of coffee, if two of them are really possible, then we'll consider throwing them head to head against each other. In the case of Blue Bottle Coffee, we actually built three prototypes. So on Wednesday, we've chosen which ones we want to prototype and created these kind of flows that we want to, you know, that seem realistic. On Thursday, we spend one day prototyping. So we are like slamming stuff together. It's super fun designing this way because it's like, it ain't professional. Like, it just looks good enough. And it's this kind of Goldilocks level of fidelity. You don't want it like too basic and you definitely don't want to waste a bunch of time making perfect looking buttons. It's like pull together some buttons that look realistic and throw it in there. Mm -hmm. So you end up with a thing that looks like a website. 
you know, in the case of Blue Bottle, it's a website. And it looks like a real website. We even put it, you know, browser bar at the top. But it ain't a website. It ain't coded. It just it's just a facade of a website. But you know, multiple screens. And then on Friday, we get five typical customers. So we really carefully identify people who are likely customers. This isn't just grabbing people off the street. Um, we want, you know, in the case of Blue Bottle, I'm pretty sure we are looking for people who'd bought things online before, mm-hmm. um, who obviously drink coffee, and I think we made sure that they were grinding their own beans at home. You know, if you're the That's kind of person who's just buying, yeah, cheap ass coffee, you're not likely in the the market for twelve dollar bags of coffee. So we brought in those people, and then we ran them through the prototype, and the prototype to them felt like they were browsing the web. So we showed them a New York, a fake New York Times article that talked about three new coffee roasters, and we said, oh, you know came across this article, let's look at these these companies. And they'd click on it, and it would go to the right one. You know, it had a little tree in it. I think we probably used Envision to hold it all together. And then our researchers just asking them, prompting them with questions the whole time. We're learning, you know, it was really interesting. There were these things that you didn't expect. Like, uh, one of the prototypes had lots and lots of text on it. And people would click on it, like, a pattern, like four out of five people would click on it, and they'd see it, and they'd be like, ooh, these people really know about coffee. And you're like, you've only been on this page for like five seconds. Like, how do you know that? And the researcher would be like, oh, what makes you think that? And they'd say, oh, I mean, there's all this writing. Like, they really care about it. This is the kind of thing that would be really hard to measure if you're just gauging analytics, right? right? You have no idea if that does anything. Turns out writing a lot of content about coffee, not that people read it all. They just read the first (laughs) few words. But they felt like, oh, if I was really, if I really want to get into it, these people are going to tell me everything. It was really important to their brand perception. Um, and then we tracked the usability of some of the, the three different ways we had to sort those 20 brown bags of coffee. Um, one of them was this idea that you tell them how you're going to make your coffee. You know, I use a pour-over technique. I'm making espresso. I'm using, you know, there's four or five different ways to make coffee. And it turns out, you know, there are certain coffees are appropriate for certain types of techniques. And mm-hmm. we have people self-select. And it turns out everybody knows how they make coffee. And everybody felt this sense of relief when they clicked it. And like, you know, three quarters of their options just disappeared. They're like, nobody was panicked about it. They're all like, oh, there's these three ones. And then we used the chocolate version of flavor uh, descriptions. And we said, this one's fruity, this one's floral, this one's earthy. And people, you know, were like, oh, I like earthy ones, you know, super manly. And they'd click on the <laughs> earthy one. And we'd ask them, you know, why they selected it. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, I like, you know, scotch that tastes earthy. So I'll probably like, you know, this coffee. And so it resonated with them. And you have to remember, like, this seems kind of obvious, but no coffee site online, either filtered by how you made your coffee or described coffee using chocolates, you know, uh, syntax. And so we were able to test these things and find out that they worked. And then we pulled together the best of each of the prototypes, and they spent the next few months engineering an e-commerce site that was really successful. And you feel like that one week gives you enough data to make a sound decision to then invest months into the engineering process and and refining that idea. It gives you much more data than just arguing in a conference room. So what we really encourage teams (laughs) to do is to do several sprints in a row. So... um, you know, the, the first company that I was talking about, the one that was doing the out-of-box flow, it was a major, major investment of their time. And it turned out that, you know, option B was much more successful than option A, but getting B dialed right in was uh, really important. Yeah, so they yeah. ran two sprints following that. So it's a pretty small team. You know, it's four or five people just doing the sprint. So it's not like your whole organization is working on it. And they went and did two more sprints and really, you know, I think of it like narrowing your options, like you're, you're targeting so originally, you've got a really wide range uh, uh, that you're targeting, and then you narrow it and narrow it. And the closer you can get it, the more confident you can be that what you're going to launch is going to match the, the user research. It's iteration with a process. That's right. Awesome. And very, very rapid. Mm-hmm. That's the key. Now a sprint? A sprint. GV.com <laughs> slash Not sprint. an agile sprint. A different sprint. <laughs> That's correct, yeah. Critique's a, a big part of... No, it's not a big part of Sprint, but like it's involved, right? Like talking through ideas and deciding pretty fairly what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think the critique in, in startups happens in a bunch of ways. In a, in a Sprint, we actually do silent critique. So okay. when you put an idea on the wall, you're not allowed defending it or even identifying that it's yours. Um, so everybody has to be able to look at your design. And I think the, the really valuable thing with that is that um, the design has to stand on its own. I think designers are really good at convincing their you know, other people that their ideas are like fucking brilliant. But you know, 
brilliant. Well, when you're convinced your own shit's brilliant, I mean, you gotta. Wait, sorry, sure. could you just paint a bit more of the picture? You're putting up like a piece of paper with a mock, so you're critiquing the visuals, or are you putting flows next to each other, or are you sharing a prototype file? Like, how does that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so the the mocks that we're doing in a sprint are actually uh, hand-drawn UI. Oh. So it's on like a post-it note. There's three panels usually, and you're like, this happens, and then that happens, and then this happens. Oh, man, okay. Um, but the thing is we actually spend quite a bit of time making them. So you can't put fake copy in them. There's no lorem ipsum or just some lines to say here's a paragraph of text. You actually have to write some text on it. On a um, post-it note? On a post-it note. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, it's just you know Tiny. small little things, <laughs> um, but it's very very um, realistic looking in the mm-hmm. end, and uh, it's good enough to be able to judge whether or not the idea you know has some promise. Um, and what we do is instead of letting people defend their ideas, is they take it's going to sound really really fucking consultancy, but it's I just swear to God it works. Is you get people to put little dots next to the ideas that they think are good. And then when you walk around and do the the verbal part of the critique, you only talk about things that got votes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're like, oh, hey, you know, people think that this way to sort coffee seems to be really effective. Let's talk about it. And everybody except for the person who draw it, drew it can talk about what they liked about it and what they thought was promising. The artist gets a chance to kind of describe what they made and why they made it. Keeping in mind, these aren't just made by designers. You know, the engineer and the, you know, statistician, whoever's in the room working on this, CEO a lot of the time, are making these sketches too. Um, so you can't win just by making something pretty. Like, I swear mm-hmm. to God, it just doesn't work. It actually has to be a clever idea. So that's an excellent way to do critique. A lot of it's like, just don't let people describe their ideas too much and try to design things that are self-explanatory. Because it turns out self-explanatory things generally end up being easier to use, as you can imagine. The other kinds of critique that we see like outside of sprints, and we do a lot of critique with the portfolio company. So designers will come in and, and do critique um, in the office. They'll show us their work, and we'll, we'll talk about it. We see a bunch of problems with critique, the way it's done in, in organizations. The, the first one is that designers frequently don't describe what problem they're trying to solve. They're just like, hey, you know, there's this thing. Mm-hmm. I designed a new homepage. And you're like, well, why the fuck are you designing a new homepage? <laughs> like, what are you trying to achieve? How are you going to measure that thing? And uh, it's really, I think, troubling that a lot of designers can't answer that question. And they'll be like, oh, we're just, we just wanted to do a refresh. And you're like, it could be prettier. What the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? Like, what, I don't even know what refresh means anymore. Um, so it's a real big problem. It's like you don't fundamentally know why you're doing it. Um, and then the other one is designers don't, you know, either spend tons of time selling their idea or they don't tell you what kind of feedback they want. So early on in a project, you don't want any comments about what color the button is. Mm-hmm. You want to know, like, am I fundamentally designing the right thing? And if you don't ask people to ignore certain things and to focus on other things, they'll just give you scattershot feedback, and it's really, really, you know, um, distracting. Mm-hmm. You know, you get this feedback that, oh, you know, no, don't worry about it. I, I'm actually, you know, it doesn't matter if it says download now or or something else. I was going to work with the copywriter later, right? Well, you need to make that really clear at the outset. And then the other one is that you need to make it clear what phase you're at. If you're at the end phase of a project, it's not useful in the critique to talk about, like, kind of, are you fundamentally doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. Unless somebody's like ready to pull the ripcord and pull a veto on it, like, that's just a distraction. It's super, super frustrating at the end of a project and somebody throws, you know, a giant rock and things and is like, oh, should we even be doing this? And you're like, listen, like, if you really thought that, like, we should have talked about this a long time ago. Or like, you should know how disruptive this is going to be. So people need to know that like, oh, now's the time to focus on the details. Are the colors right? Is the alignment right? You know, am I doing the right things? So I think that's a big problem. And then the other one is I think designers pulling their punches with each other. The thing I've learned is that it's respectful to people to be honest with them. If you go in there and you hedge your bets and you're like, oh, you know, you tried real hard here and there's so much to like about this. When there's nothing to like, you're really just, you know, blowing smoke up their ass. And like, I don't think, I think designers respect, uh, deserve more than that. I think a designer, if you can, you know, work with them and say, listen, like, I know you've been working really hard on this, but I think fundamentally there's still a lot of problems here. And you start, you know, rationally explaining what they are and then... The next time when you work with them and they bring you something that's actually really good, they'll know you're fucking telling them the truth. When you're like, oh, this is great. I have nothing to tell you about this. They'll be like, whoa, last time, like, total hard ass. And this time, like, everything's smooth. You're being honest. Mm-hmm. You're being direct. And, you know, I, I heard a, a really famous designer in the Bay Area. One, 
I won't name drop because that would be that'd be terrible. Uncouth. <laughs> but this big designer, and he was talking about his team, and he realized one day he had gone out, uh, was walking out to his car after doing a critique, and uh, he had kind of pulled his punches with the designer, and he realized afterwards that he was being disrespectful. It wasn't helping anybody for him to kind of pull his punches. So I'd encourage people to be, I mean, you don't have to be a dick. You don't have to yell at people or like tell them they're stupid. Like don't make it personal. But if work's not good, I've seen designers, you know, at Google, for instance, you know, a room of 20 designers sitting around and someone's showing some mediocre work and everyone's like super effort. And you're like, that's when Berka starts throwing chairs. I, I practically, I mean, I tried to do it politely, but I was like, listen, guys, like, <laughs> politely throw chairs. <laughs> I, like, I don't know if I'm eating crazy pills here, but like this, this could, this needs to be better. Like we, mm-hmm. we can do better than this as a team. And like a good, a good effort's not good enough in my book. Mm-hmm. Like if you're, if in the end you can't produce it, like I'll fire you. Like let's do some real work together. So one of the things you mentioned when, when something's right, you said, I have nothing to say. How do you balance encouragement with this kind of focusing on getting the problem solved? Right, right. So I'm not, it's not nothing to say. It's like great work. Like I actually mean that. Okay. Like let's, you know, I'm not just like, <laughs> I have no oh, Good enough. And I walk out <laughs> well, the door. That, that's something a lot of people say is like, oh, there's nothing wrong. So, okay. Yeah. I'm, and I'm bad at this. I, I think this is something I, I've starting to get better at. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I used to only focus on the negative because I was like, oh, you know. You are, you know, I, I used Myself to think included, that that's people, kind of where I live. It's like, this is what's wrong with it. If I don't say there's something wrong with it, it's right. Like, yeah. that's all you need to know. And you, you forget sometimes that, you know, the other designer maybe doesn't know that they did the right thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in some ways I just assume that like, oh, you know, I think you're good. So you must know you're good. Like, so we can just leave the yep. good part to the side <laughs> and not talk about it. But um, we've covered this, right? Like, but even I like getting compliments from other people. So like. <laughs> Don't you know, know, I'm starting to get better at, uh-huh. at um, telling people the positive and the negative. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with giving somebody the shit sandwich, for instance, when you're giving feedback. Like, do say something positive if there's something positive to say. But don't make up shit. Like, you don't have to say something positive if there's nothing good to like. Just, I mean, don't be an ass about <laughs> it. But, like, yeah. let's talk about the problems. Let's make it better. And in the end, you'll teach them how to be a better designer. And, you know, feedback will get smoother. What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? Um, Ursula. <laughs> no, she's a heavy sleeper. This is my dog. <laughs> I have a large dog. Um, the, the two things that keep me up at night are, one, that I might get complacent. So working at a venture capital company is a very comfortable job. I you know, get paid a lot of money. I don't work crazy hours anymore. And I do worry about losing my edge. Running design teams and running a startups was hard. It was really hard. And I don't forget how stressful it was. But I do miss that level of stress sometimes. I, I do get off on that. It's really fun. Um, and I do, you know, you see all these com- you know, people go to big companies and they get really comfortable and they get used to the high salaries and the, all the benefits and the perks. And then they can't go hungry anymore. And uh, I really worry about that. Um, don't think I'm there yet, but I've been there for three years. It's, it's very comfortable. And then the, the other one I worry about is, uh, is about how much time we got. Like generally, and this maybe sounds heavy, but like, you know, I've heard somebody describe working with Elon Musk as like extremely difficult because he knows that he's got limited time on earth and he wants to do as much as possible before he departs. And I'm not- Well, he's leaving earth before the rest of us, right? That's true. That's (laughs) true. I'm not at his level of urgency, but I understand that that sense of urgency. They, Mm -hmm. if like, I don't want to sit home and watch a movie if I could be working on something that seems more important than that. And impending doom-driven design. <laughs> <laughs> sure, call it what you want. I and part of the reason I'm I'm uh, excited to go to work every day is I do get to work on some problems that really matter. You know, I get to work with you know one stealthy startup that's doing some really like hardcore like autonomous vehicle stuff that I think is the chance to really make the world better. Um, get to work with a couple companies that are, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, medical companies that are doing things that will generally save thousands of people's lives. More and more as I get older, interested in working on those projects that are, like, really epic. Like, I got to work a couple year, years ago on uh, the brand for Calico, which is another one of the Alphabet companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I got to work on this it's brand. It's on Life Extension, right? Yeah. So, I got to work with Art Levinson, who's the chairman of Apple and used to run Genentech. I sat in a room with him and four of the world's best geneticists and talked to them about a brand that 
should be around for decades that will eventually you know, carry a product that should make people live considerably longer. And to work on that stuff, you know, this really, truly epic, potentially world-changing things, gets more and more exciting. And I could spend all of my time doing that. And maybe I should. I'd, so that, that definitely keeps me up at night. It's, you know, I work on all kinds of projects, but I don't only work on those ones. On the complacency side, do you uh-huh. have advice for people? The example you mentioned is people go to big companies, get used to the perks and the salaries. Advice to those people, present company included, for not becoming complacent. Oh yeah, Brian works Boy. at Nerd Disneyland. <laughs> That's true. Um, I mean, a big part of it's like not getting, not increasing your lifestyle in a way that you have to support with a big salary. I mean, if you buy a home and owe a lot of money on a mortgage and want to drive a, you know, a BMW 5 Series, you know, all around, like. Don't get me wrong. Like you I were drive about to say Ferrari. Yeah, you <laughs> want a Ferrari right away. <laughs> it's not about like, but that that sounds like really extravagant. I think the, a lot of people don't do extravagant things. They just buy like a nice four bedroom house in San Mateo and you know a comfortable car, and then they don't want to live in a place that doesn't have a pool, and they don't want to travel and not stay in a four star hotel. Like these pretty normal things. You know, like our people we hang out with all the time. That's a normal life to them. And the more you get used to that and that you have to have you know, a certain type of lifestyle, the harder it is to get scrappy again. And I think that's something I'm very, very conscious of. And you know, in the next few weeks, I'm actually selling my house and doing some travel. And part of me is really, really excited to make my life lighter again. I have less stuff. I'm selling all my furniture. I'm not going to have a house when I come back. And it feels great. So I, I think it's, it's important. Yeah, no, it's not for everybody. I mean, that's just, great I'm, advice, though. Yeah. a lot of it's you know this advice. I'm I'm l- largely talking about myself here. I mean, people should do whatever makes them happy. I think um, some people are very happy with doing that for twenty, thirty years. Yeah, then you're done. I mean, my older brother works at a hedge fund in New York, and just a few weeks ago, he said, you know, I can imagine retiring in this job, and part of me was shocked because I just can't imagine hearing that come out of my mouth. But for him, that's great. What would you want to be remembered for? I, I, I'm coming back to the two things that keep you up at night. One of them is our time on Earth. What would you want to be remembered for? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a really interesting question. Um, I think it would be either like fundamentally shaping a product that that benefited a lot of people, or and this is again as I get older, I think um, potentially you know having a role in te- sorry the next uh, generation of designers. Mm-hmm. So you know, getting to work and mentor younger designers as they come up in their careers is really exciting to me and you know occasionally hearing from people and they're like hey you know i met you when you were eight when i was 18 and now i'm doing this other thing and you know you know you help me with that it's super satisfying as you can imagine um so if i could do some combination of work on projects that you know i can point to like if calico's successful i can point at that and be like i had a very small part you know obviously the science matters a great deal on a project like that but i had a very small part in a very important project you know, it's like Manhattan Project scale. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, that would be great. Except the opposite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's a good answer. That's rad. I think we're good. Yeah. We're out of time. So, hang on. You guys have been doing this 100 episodes? Yeah, it's number 100. 100? I asked Congratulations, her guys. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's amazing. How it's long fun. did it take you to do 100? 13 months. Yeah. We started this uh, January 5th fifth of last year we started recording before that like in late december so i mean i'll throw that back at you guys what are you hoping to do with this podcast what are you hoping it's like people get out of this in the end well this podcast has become a lot of other things too right we have like six podcasts on a network now we have a network of three thousand people in a slack team uh and we do like public critiques and stuff and spend a lot of time helping people like learn new tools and stuff like that so uh, the helping the next generation of designers thing which I guess kind of ends up being us, but that's helping other designers get better because it's not a zero-sum game, right? Like, there's plenty of jobs for everyone. So that's been really fun. Like, that's something I didn't expect to be doing at this point. Yeah. It's, it's really cool that you're doing it, you know, at your age. Because one of the things I've seen with teaching, I was talking to, to Tim Ferriss about this a few weeks ago, is that 
there's a real problem with experts teaching people things because like they forget what it was like. Yeah. like it's like when I'm, I'm rock climbing and I'm climbing somebody's like really fucking good and they're like, oh, just do this. And I'm like, fuck you. What you're saying <laughs> is like go to the gym for like five years and like build some huge <laughs> guns and then do that move. Whereas like somebody who's just a bit better than me is able to like kind of empathize with where I'm at mm -hmm. and can show me some technique that might help me. I think that's really true of design. I think, you know, kind of intermediate level designers have all this insight into what it takes to go from yeah. kind of a cold start to being, you know, actually designing. Yeah. And that's great. An old boss, I think it was my, my old boss gave me this advice. Seems like everyone's New Year's resolution is to write more. Everyone wants to do it. But then one of the key reasons people don't is they're like, ah, I don't know what I would say. I don't think people would listen to me. Mm -hmm. uh, he He taught me this idea that uh, your skills are along a spectrum. Like you don't have to be at the expert end of a spectrum to have an opinion that matters. All you have to do is be one level, one tick above the next person that's reading it, and you're going to teach them something and help them move up the ladder, right? Right. I think one of the great tricks with that, and I think Kevin told me this actually, Kevin Rose, he was like, when I first was speaking at conferences, I had that exact problem. And he was like, listen, just go up there and tell people your story and just say, this is what worked for me. And that way you're not like, trying to, you know, pontificate. Oh, all designers should do X cuz like that's bullshit. You know, even experts don't know that. Should shit. designers code? Wait, <laughs> just for like a second. Should designers okay. dribble? They God, I'm so sick of this. I'm ugh. Ah. Yeah, yikes. Tobias had a really good post about the dribble <laughs> thing the other day. Um Toby Schneider? Yeah. But you know, wow, you really distracted me. Damn it. Perfect. <laughs> that's my whole goal. Yeah. That and puns. No, you just tell your story and you don't right. you don't extrapolate it upon every other person. I don't know, extrapolate's not the right word. Um, that's exactly the apply point. Apply it to every person in the that's world. That's exactly the point, yeah. yeah. It's like, your story's valuable and like what worked for you might work for some other people. What we do is an objective. So don't try and be objective on everything. Maybe your design's not objective. My, <laughs> my design's objectively perfect. But yeah, I think that's a great point. I think uh, like some of the most rewarding things have been when people ask Bryn or I to get coffee and they're like, oh yeah, I heard you on the podcast and inspired me to move to San Francisco and now I'm working at a startup and it's, it's like, amazing right holy yeah. shit <laughs> that's yeah. so rewarding that happened this morning what, good for you guys what a great day Shirzad 100 yeah. episodes 100 shout episodes out, shout out Shirzad yeah. Yeah. it's crazy 100 episodes can't believe it Thanks. actually happened it's really impressive, I didn't expect guys. to be doing it a year later honestly it's really really as you guys know it's really hard to stick with something for a long time especially two a week yeah, <laughs> yeah I used to draw the little this is actually having I, to listen to this guy yeah. I used to draw little cartoon characters for Silver Orange. I nice. did one a month, and it was like a celebrity, and I'd draw, you know, like either a real celebrity, like, you know, like Andre the Giant, or like a fake celebrity, like Jeffrey Zellman, and I'd draw them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like internet celebrities. Like, Jeffrey's a celebrity to me, but he's not a celebrity in the general in world. He, he's an internet celebrity in that he built the internet. Like, right? He's, he's responsible like, for like all of it, grandfather right? Grandfather web design. Um, but, uh... I tried to do it, and I, I maybe pulled it off for three years or so. You know, there are quite a few of them. But three like, years is a good amount. Once a month, simple little cartoon. Like, I could have done better. It's just, it's really, really, really hard to stick with something. Mm -hmm. And, like, you guys have been doing it, you know, twice a week for over a year. That's really cool. Thanks. Twice a week for almost a year. We switched yeah. three months in yep. from one in a week. Look at that. And they still have so much humility. <laughs> no, we just, oh, it's got to be the right facts, man. <laughs> Well, thank uh, you for coming on and being number appreciate 100. It. Thank Especially you so much notice. for having me. <laughs> it's been fun. Anything you want to plug before you go? I mean, the only thing I want to plug is that book. There we go. Go to gv.com slash sprint. Um, and we really hope you enjoy the book. You can pre-order it now. It'll ship on March 8th. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much, man. Thanks. That was it. 100 episodes down. We made it. We All this it. way. We are excited for the next 100. Starting on Wednesday with Katie Jew and Tara Mann. We're doing another roundtable format. And we wanted to talk about things we don't know about. Storytelling. We wanted to talk about all these like old formats that are coming back. Email, audio. Brendan and I learned some things. So that will be coming out on Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed episode 100. This one was a special one for us. If you did enjoy it, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. Leave us a review on iTunes. Every review helps us move up the charts, which helps new people discover the show. That's been really valuable for us, and we really, really appreciate everyone that's left us a review. We enjoy reading those. And of course, give us feedback and, and comments if, if that feels right as well. And finally, if you want to chat with us, learn about the latest news and tools and developments for designers and developers, join our Slack team at spec.fm slash Slack. We have over 3,000 people in there chatting about 
the latest and greatest in tools. Many of whom are some of our heroes and the people we've had on the show. I know Mark Hemming was like sharing his new product in there yesterday and it was it was pretty great. Yeah. So definitely join that again. That's at spec.fm slash slack. We'll see you on Wednesday with Katie Jew and Tara Mann. Thanks for listening 100 episodes. Seriously? Yeah. What? Tweet at us. If you've listened to all 100. Why would you listen to us talk for 100 episodes? But if you have, tweet at us. We should, we'll favorite your tweets. We'll like it. (laughs) That's what you get. Uh, I'd still like to call it fave. We'll fave your tweets. Mm. It just feels like home. (sighs) (sighs) Ah.